Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you as needy people. Each and every one of us here this morning understands the reality of our need to have our eyes illumined by your Spirit, that we might understand the great truths before us. Lord, forgive us in our own arrogance sometimes how we assume and presume upon who you are and how you act. Cause our hearts to reflect upon the very nature and character of you in its truest sense that we might understand these very things that we're studying so that our hearts would be enlightened and filled with joy so that our understanding would be deeper so that the proclamation of the gospel would be purer so that what people hear from us and see in us would be only and solely Jesus Christ and Him alone. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them with me again this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we are focusing our attention once again on verses 14 through 29. You probably remember from our time here last Lord's Day that we were reminded from the words of Isaiah the prophet and Isaiah 55 that God told Israel, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. We read this morning Psalm 50 and those Indicting words of the psalmist by means of God speaking through him to the nation of Israel. You thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. This is a truth, beloved, that we must always have in our minds and our hearts as we approach the study of the Scripture. Anytime you open the Word of God, you must remember and recall to yourself, if you need to, that reality that God does not think like you think, that God does not act like we act. In fact, He even indicts Israel in Psalm 50 to that very fact. You thought that I was just like you. Israel thought that God had thought and acted in the same way that they acted. That the relationships that they had with one another and the way that they treated others and thought of others was the same way that God operated. That if they brought their sacrifices to Him, even if their heart was wrong, that God thought like they did. And God calls them out on that particular sin when they face the punishment for it. For God. I was reading that this week and thinking that should serve as a warning to us as God's people when we approach Him in any way, especially, especially when we look at Him in His Word. We cannot approach what He says with the idea that He is like us. 
or that he thinks like us, or that he acts like us. To do that is to diminish God. It is to bring God down to our level, to invoke upon God the very creation that he created upon the very creator. It actually elevates ourselves to the place of godness. When we say that God thinks like us, or that God's ways are our ways, or that His thoughts are our thoughts. It actually makes us out to be equal with God. We addressed this last Lord's Day because of the danger in each of us to do that. Danger in each of our hearts. The danger because of our fallenness to diminish God. To think of God in terms of our own humanness. Especially when we look at very difficult doctrines within Scripture, such as the one that we are currently studying in Romans chapter 9. When it comes to the very difficult doctrines and the tension that is there and those loose ends that we want tied up and all of those things that we have so many questions about that God chooses not to answer, we tend to try to make it a little bit easier upon ourselves and we try to get God out of the difficult box by saying in our hearts and our minds, He must just... Think like us. And we start to adjust the doctrine. And the doctrine of God's sovereign choice in salvation can be a difficult doctrine for us to embrace. Not because it isn't true, not because it isn't right, not because it isn't taught in Scripture, but simply because our fallen human nature recoils from that reality. God being sovereign over everything... Our fallenness hates that. Even as Christians, sometimes we allow our fallenness to win the day. And truths like the one we see here in verse 17 go against everything in our fallenness and everything in our own definition of justice. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18, so I have mercy on whom I desire and I harden whom I desire. We recall against that. We know what the Bible says. We know that Pharaoh hated the God of Israel. That's clear from Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2. We saw that last week. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I mean, who is this one you call God? Who is him? Who is he anyway that I, Pharaoh, the king of the world, should let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides that, I will not let Israel go. Listen, he comes to me. That was Pharaoh's heart. It's very clear that he's rejecting God. And the more he rejected God, the more his culpability is before God. God informed Pharaoh just what Romans 9 verse 17 tells us. In essence, God says to Pharaoh, I've kept you around this long for this explicit purpose. I should have destroyed you long ago, and that's where you should be going because of your own sinfulness. Because you are a fallen human and because you reject me, you should be destroyed. But I've kept you around. I've let you stand for this very moment in order to display my power so that my name is proclaimed throughout the whole world. 
God in allowing Pharaoh to stand while, while Israel was being called out by Moses on the, the command of God and all of the plagues that took place and Pharaoh continually rejecting to let the people go. All of that was done so that the gospel would be heard. That's exactly what happened. God displays his power over and over again on Pharaoh. And even as Pharaoh continues to reject God, as God delivers Israel, the name and the power of God was and has continued to be throughout the entire history of the world to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You read through the entire Old Testament and you think about Israel itself. And as you read and you think about them and you look around the world, they always go back to the God who delivered them from Egypt. We noted last week that while God did not create Pharaoh like that, God did not create Pharaoh evil so that he might do what he did. No, that was Pharaoh's issue. Pharaoh was as fallen as the rest of humanity. He was as fallen as you and I. You want to put a name on Pharaoh? Put our own name there. Put each one of your names there. Put my name there. We are Pharaoh. But God using Pharaoh as he was, a sinner, a God-hating unbeliever, just like you and I, God hardened his heart in order to accomplish his purposes through him. And that's why Paul sums it up in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That is simply to say this, that God is free to do as he pleases according to his own sovereign will. And because God is over all things and because he can even use evil to show his own glory, God will do that. That's what you see happening in verse 17. God in his sovereign hand, even using wicked men to accomplish his goodness. So God took, takes Pharaoh as he is in his fallenness, in his complete depravity. Just as we are from birth. And God chooses not to restrain Pharaoh's hard heart. God chooses to let Pharaoh do what fallenness does. And Pharaoh continues to reject God. And through that, Pharaoh is hardened even more so that God, in his own predetermined purpose, would accomplish exactly what he had predetermined to happen. What was that predetermined purpose? That his power and his name would be proclaimed through the whole earth. And we know that happened because we have the Old Testament. It's not a man-made opinion. It's not a story. It's what God said. And so having said all of that, Paul now brings up another objection that we have lying latent in our hearts as fallen humans in reference to this doctrine. He knows it's brewing there in our fallen thinking. It's like the other objections that we've already heard, right? It's the same flow of objections from that. If chapter 8 is true, 
if verses 37 through 39 are true, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing in the created order could ever do that. Listen, if you're truly saved in Christ, you can't sin your way out of salvation. If that's true, it doesn't matter then. about anything, our salvation by God in Christ, if it's that absolute, what about, what about the Jews? Remember the first objection that Paul lists here for us in Romans chapter 9? God promises to them. God had promised to the Jews all of these great and wonderful promises. He gave them His Word. If it's absolute, then why are they not being saved? Great question. The answer was, verse 6, true Israel is a special spiritual people who are only part of physical Israel. All Israel is not Israel. And then, of course, from that objection came the second objection that we saw in verse 14 then God must be wicked if that's the case. If Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I mean, if God made a choice, even though in the promises and all of those kinds of things, then God must be wicked. He must be unrighteous if that's how He works. Paul answers the question. God isn't wicked at all. In fact, He shows His righteousness by the fact of His choice. In other words, nobody deserved it. Jacob didn't deserve to be loved, but God loved him anyway. And like we said, what should surprise us so much in verse 13 is not that Esau was hated, but that Jacob was loved. What should surprise us so much is not that Pharaoh was not letting Israel go, but that Pharaoh was being allowed to remain. And so Paul answers, God's choice is what matters. And Paul uses Israel as an example of that fact. They're worshiping the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, they're worshiping the golden calf. And the entire nation doesn't deserve any mercy. The entire nation is guilty. They're all worshiping. They're all worshiping an idol. God had told them, you should have no other gods before me. They're worshiping an idol. No one's innocent before God. And yet God tells Moses, I should destroy them all. That's what they actually deserve. But I will have mercy and compassion on some. In the same way, He has shown mercy and compassion to Israel through His use of a guilty Pharaoh. Now, even though Paul has dismantled those two objections, one more still is there. One more is still in our heart. And it's introduced for us in verse 19. Verse 19 says, You will say then to me, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And what is behind the question is the reality of man being held responsible before God when it seems to be a contradiction of righteousness if no one can resist the will of God. 
Why is man still judged if nobody can resist the will of God? How is God still righteous in His judgment? Why does God save some and punish others? That's the idea. It isn't fair. It's not fair. And right here we are face to face with the struggle that many people have with this doctrine. The one really from which throughout history most of the debate comes. How do we reconcile the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Now I bet you're wishing you were up here giving this talk this morning than me. But you're not. I get the task. And so I want to take it a little bit slow so that we can understand exactly how we are to look at this. Because we need to move that way so that we can best understand it. Because it's clear from the text, and it's clear from other places in Scripture, that it is God alone who determines the salvation of any person. Now I say it that way purposefully because it doesn't matter which side of the theological aisle you want to land on, whether you believe in a universalism or what we might say is a universalism in the sense that God has offered salvation in the sense of a realistic way for everybody to be saved because He looked down through the annals of time and saw who might believe. Or you're on the side where I believe the Bible teaches and that is divine election by God. It is clear from the text, either way, that God alone determines salvation for any person. In other words, a person is saved because God chose them for salvation. It doesn't matter which side of the theological aisle you're on, that's true in either case. That's true whether you have fully embraced what the Bible teaches concerning election or not. God is the one who makes the determination to save. In other words, if you believe that foreknowledge is defined, and you shouldn't after our study in this from previous weeks, but if you still believe that foreknowledge is God looking down through the annals of time, and He looks out before He ever creates and sees who will believe in Him, and therefore He chooses those to save, it's still God choosing to save. God is still the determiner of salvation. And we need to begin there because there are many who say that God's choice is based upon that kind of foreknowledge. Therefore, because of that, He chooses to save them. That's how some try to get God off the hook here in light of the text and what it says to explain away the difficulty of this passage. But we need to understand... But if that is, if that was the case, if that's what the meaning is here and what Paul has been trying to say, then understand this, if Paul was meaning that about God saving and looking down through the annals of time, then I can tell you and, and you can be rest assured in the fact that no one would ever object to that. No one would object to that because everyone would say, well, of course, that's fair. I mean, after all, it's their choice. 
even though God's the ultimate determiner in salvation, it's still, he looked down to see who would believe. It was their choice. That would be fair. No one would object to that. Everyone would simply just say, well, that's fair for God to do so because, after all, he's just responding to their response. In other words, if you will not respond, then God is right or God is fair in not saving you. That's how some people try to get God off the hook or at least appease their own difficulty. But the problem is that people do object to what Paul has said, to what Paul has clearly said. In fact, those whom Paul is writing to have clearly objected to what he said. They clearly have understood the implications of what he said, that it is in God alone and man can do nothing to save himself. Go all the way back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God. They fully understand that. And the reason they object is because they understand that. And they say just what Paul is introducing to us here in verse 19. Why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, you clearly understand the implications of what Paul has been saying. And the only response from a fallen human heart and mind is that's not fair. In other words, no one would object unless salvation has nothing to do with us. So the question for us here this morning is this, how then do we reconcile the sovereignty of God in salvation with the responsibility of man to be culpable for his own unbelief? And the answer to that question is this. In order to reconcile those two realities in our hearts and minds, we must pay very close attention to what Paul actually says. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We must pay very close attention to what God actually says through Paul here. We have to strive to understand what God means by what he says, and then leave it there and go no further. Remember years ago when I was in seminary sitting in a theology class struggling with these things and I would have questions with my professor and he would say to me, listen, when it comes to these kinds of doctrines, you must leave them within the leather. Some of you are going, what does he mean by that? Leave them in the scriptures where they belong and don't step outside of that. Don't go outside the leather of your Bible. Don't go into the realms of speculation and, oh, wait, this is what God was thinking. Leave it where God defines it. And when you leave it where God defines it, you are standing squarely at what I mentioned to us a few weeks ago, at that wall of worship. And you're acknowledging God is not like me. God is not like me. So with that in mind, let's begin to look at Paul's response to the objection in verse 19. Beginning in verse 20, Paul says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, 
Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now in just reading that, I hope you understand and notice the first implication to the objection and you understand in reading it that, the, that it's born, that, that first implication is born from a heart of human neutrality before God. That's how we think about ourselves. That all humanity is neutral before God. Notice verse 19. What do you say? Why does he find fault? In other words, the assumption in the question is, there shouldn't be any finding of fault. In other words, man is neutral. Man isn't in a place of guilt or innocence. He's in the middle ground. He's in a place of neutrality. And he assumes that there is no fault to be had for those whom God does not choose. In other words, they're just sitting in this place of Neutrality in which there is no guilt before God or that there's no fault for them who presumably choose God before He chooses them. In other words, man is neutral. That's the heart behind the question. We know that can't be true. Man is not neutral at all. The Bible not only tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God as we looked and saw in Romans chapter 3, That there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us that we are born in our trespasses and sins. It tells us that to break any part of God's law is to be guilty of the whole law. Therefore, it says, the wages of sin is death. And the reason we all die is simply because we are all guilty sinners. Therefore, there is no neutral position for a person before God. Not one single person who has ever breathed a breath of air on the face of this earth is innocent before God. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of an eternity separated from God in hell. That's our place. That's our position before God. And therefore, we said a couple weeks ago, if you refuse to acknowledge your depravity before God, if you refuse to acknowledge that you are completely and utterly and totally depraved, incapable of seeking after God, incapable of choosing God, incapable of going after God at all in your humanness, then you will struggle constantly with God's sovereignty in salvation. You will readjust the definition of how God saves in some kind of way. But if you remember that no one deserves salvation, then it opens the door to the understanding of this doctrine at its fullest sense. 
This is the first truth that we must embrace and acknowledge. And so the question of verse 19 is first born out of an assumption that man is neutral and that is not the case. But secondly, that question is actually, get this, it's actually an acknowledgement that if salvation is going to happen to anyone, God must do something. See, people who ask the question, people who have a heart that asks that kind of question, are actually acknowledging without even thinking about it that God must do something in salvation. Because they're asking the question, okay, then why does God find fault? Who resists His will? I mean, if God's sovereign over everybody's will, then God has to do something. Because who could resist Him? That's the assumption in the question. If you're going to be judged by God, even if we assume that God is unjust, which is blasphemy, but we'll just throw that out there as an assumption. Still, if anyone is to be saved, even if God is wicked in His judging, God must still choose to do it. So no matter how it's viewed, God is still the one who saves and not man. And so, with those two realities in our mind, verse 20 gives us a rebuke to the question. Who's going to find fault? Or why does God still find fault? Who resists His will? Here's the rebuke. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God. In other words, on the contrary of your view of yourself, on the contrary to how you are currently viewing yourself in some kind of neutral position, in some kind of place where where God must be unrighteous if He does what He does, contrary to that, contrary to all of that, who do you think you are in comparison to who God is. That's the idea. I believe this is probably the most important point of all. Here's the thing that we ought to draw from this. Remember your place. When you're talking about you and God, you need to remember your place when you're speaking of and giving meaning to who God is and what God does. Listen, beloved, when we are thinking about this profound subject, the only place to start is with our actual position in comparison to God's actual position. That's the only place to start. Who are we? To tell God what is right or wrong with what He is doing. Who are we? To do that is to just elevate ourselves to the place of God. And so that is simply to say that when we think about the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we must not think of it through fallen human terms. We can't think of it through fallen, our, our fallen thinking. We are in a completely different place than God. And this is what Paul is saying at the very beginning of this answer. Who are you to contradict God? Who do you think you are? I mean, we've, we've said that 
probably to our children sometimes that they come and start to exercise their their own independence before their parents. We may not say the words, but in our heart we're thinking, who do you think you are? You're a snot-nosed kid. I mean, we've probably even said these words. I brought you into the world. I'll take you out of it. Right? That's, that's in essence what Paul is saying here. The question begs that very response. You being a created being, you being a fallen created being, who are you to answer to God? And the implication is that God is talking with someone here. That God is the one giving the answer and He's giving the answer and the person answers back to God, contradicting what He has just declared. I mean, God the Spirit is moving Paul along to write these words. This is God talking and God is saying, this is how salvation happens. And someone says, then why God do you find fault with an attitude in their heart? With this attitude of contempt. That can't be right. you got to be wrong. This is, you got it all wrong, God. That's the idea. Who do you think you are? What kind of creature contradicts God? I mean, if you want a proof for depravity, there it is. No other part of creation contradicts God. They do exactly what God says. Aren't you glad boulders don't just get up and start walking around your neighborhood? Aren't you glad the tree does exactly what God says it does? The only part of of God's created order that doesn't do what God says it does that says for them to do is fallen humanity and the fallen angels who went with Satan. And they're already confirmed in their hellish eternity. And yet man stands up in his arrogance and he says, Oh God, you must be wrong in how you do this. That's not fair. This is the point Paul is making. When we come to this area of our salvation and how it came about, we better come with a heart that desires to understand God and not with a heart of one that plans to contend against God. When we do that, we're implying that God doesn't know what He's doing. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not implying in any kind of way that God doesn't like our questions. God is a loving Father. He wants our questions. It isn't the question that God hates. God doesn't hate the question, the the true desire to understand how does this fit together? Why then, why God with a heart of understanding, I'm trying to understand, why why do you still find fault? I mean, who, who, who can actually go against your will? I know how you created me. I know how my heart goes. I know I'm fallen in all of this. I know I'm depraved in all of this. Then, then help me understand all that. God doesn't hate the question. God loves us to, to ask him questions. What God hates is a spirit of contention when we ask. Okay, God, you need to answer me. Unless I get the answer that I want to hear from you, you're wrong. That's what God hates. You see, here it's asked with the implication that God is in some way being unjust. 
Why does he still find fault then? That's a spirit of contention in those words. It's as if the, the person asking the question here is saying, this is all wrong, God. What do you have to do with punishing anybody? Because nobody deserves that. You ever heard that said in our world? I can't believe that. They didn't deserve that. And so we hear the rebuke. Who do you think you are, O man? By the way, in the original language, the emphasis is right there on man. Who do you think you are, O created being? It's as if God's saying that. It's as if God's having a dialogue with us, sitting right there in his throne room. Oh, really? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, oh man? You are the created. You're not the creator. And even more than that, you are a fallen one in your understanding. And you are not neutral. You see, this is always a struggle with this doctrine, isn't it? It's always a struggle. We tend to speak well before we have considered what it is we're speaking about. Do we have examples of this happening in Scripture? Sure. Sure we do. I'm sure your mind is going to the very place I'm going to tell you about. What happened to Job? We all go there when we're going through a tough time. We like to go to Job because Job knows how to suffer. And it's true. Job went through a lot. Certainly had a whole host of tragedies take place in his life that he didn't understand. And he had all kinds of friends come around him who were even more clueless. And after all, he was a godly man. It says that right in Job chapter 1. He was a righteous, godly man. And yet the book that we have in our Bibles under his own name tells us that when he suffers under these great tragedies, Job begins to contend with God. Don't think we're past that. He was a righteous guy. And he's contending with God. God, give me a hearing before you so that I can state my case. I mean, these guys are saying I'm sinful and all this is happening because I'm sinful. I know my conscience. My heart is right before you. I want a hearing in your courtroom before you. I want to contend my case before you. In other words, I have been wronged in all of this and I need to, to get it out. All through the book, you can hear Job get more and more bold in his complaints and in his assertions so that when you come to the end of the book, after God has spoken to Job, and he said, I'll, I'll let you speak after you answer me these questions. And he goes through the litany of questions. And in Job 42, verse 1 to 6, here's Job's answer to the Lord. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, which I do not know. Hear now and I will speak, Job says. Here, here, okay, I'm, it's time for me. I'm going to talk now. 
Here's what he says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I love that. Don't, don't miss the therefores in Scripture. In light of what I just said about you and who you are, therefore, I retract. I retract everything I ever said, and I'll just sit here and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, you know, my right response is to you, God, just simply to close my mouth, sit there with my hand over my mouth, retract everything I said, hope that you never heard any of it, and I'll just go, please forgive me because I know nothing. God never told Job why he did what he did, why he allowed Satan to do what he did. He never told him anything. He just showed him who he was. I love that. Because Job regrets that he ever said anything without first remembering his place before God. Job got to the place in his own heart where he began to contend with God about whether he was being righteous about whether God was treating him righteously. And after God showed him who he was, after Job was reminded of his place as a creature before the Creator, then Job says of himself, what a fool I've been speaking without thinking. I was way out of line. That's what Paul is desiring that we remember first when we raise this kind of question. That's why the rebuke here in verse 20. Don't forget who you are. When you come to God, when you are responding to God with questions about what God's doing, don't forget who you are. It's going to help you much when you think about your responsibility before God and his sovereignty to save those whom he desired. Remember who you are, O oh man. That's a massive contrast. Man contrasted with God. And then Paul gives a second contrast. Notice what he says. He, he flushes that out a little bit. That ought to be enough. We just sit there and go, yeah, you're right. I, I, I Just shut up. Let me just close my mouth. I shouldn't say anything. God is who God is. God can do what God does, even if I don't understand every detail of how God does it or, or he doesn't tell me. But Paul flushes it out a little bit. He gives a second contrast. Notice what he says in verse 20. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Paul contrasts man with God. Who do you think you are, O oh man, in comparison to God? And now he says, all right, let's, let's, let's even lessen the picture a little bit. Who, who do you think you are, the thing molded, in comparison to the molder? It's a great lesson. Another lesson in being the lesser, in compared to God. We are lesser. We are the molded ones. We are the thing formed. That's the word there, molded. It's, it's formed. It's a great word. 
Now know this as you're looking at this passage. Nowhere here in this passage, particularly in verses 19 through 24, is Paul speaking of creation, ex nihilo creation back in Genesis. He's not talking about you being a created person when he talks about molded. It's the word formed, formed from something, formed from that which was already there. That's the idea. So it doesn't, he's not referring to, to creation. It's where our minds tend to go, but that's not the meaning here. It's the word from which we get our word plastic. The word actually in the original is plasma in the original language, in the Greek, plasma. Now we think blood, right? But it's more the idea of plastic, something to be shaped. It's something formed. So Paul's not talking, Paul's not referring here to creation. He's referring here to formation. Formation. It's formation of that which already is. And that's an important point for us to make because we're not going to get to it today, but a little farther down, we get to the idea, well, we'll get to it in verse 21 here in a second, the idea of clay, the lump of clay. That's something that's there. Jeremiah 45, I believe it is, talks about the clay of Israel. Israel's the clay, and God used an example of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah goes to the potter's house, and the potter is there forming something, and the clay messes up, and he discards that and gets this other clay so he can fashion it into something. It's that fashioning of the clay. The clay is existing already. It's us. It's our fallenness. It's humanity. Already been created and fallen. So if it was the creation, as some people try to say, and you read commentaries, people try to go there, if it's something created in our minds, then we would have to say that God created things that were not good, right? Because it says he can make something in verse 21 for honorable use or good use and something for common use or dishonorable use is the word in the original. So that means God creates, if it's creation, God creates things that are not good because the very next, because verse 21 says that. And he says he makes it from the very same lump. But we know what Genesis 1.31 says. When God created everything, what does it say? And God created and everything was very good, it says. All things that God created were very good. And so here in Romans 9, it's not speaking about creation, but rather he's dealing with what has already been created. You and I now in our fallenness. You get that down in verse 22 and 23. You get the implication of that when it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, he's not going to have wrath upon things that he made are good. He's having wrath upon those who are fallen, sinful. The wages of sin is death. God's wrath remains upon all men, Romans 1 says. And to make his power known, he endured much patience, vessels of wrath. We're going to look at it next week, this word prepared here in verse 22 and 23. Those are not the same words in the original language. Very interesting connotation. And so here in Romans 9, he's not speaking of creation. He's speaking of formation. So the lump of clay here is representative of all of us 
in our fallenness. And the whole lump is worthy to be thrown away. We're like Israel, worshiping the golden calf. We're like Pharaoh. We don't deserve to live. And yet God, in His divineness, as a divine artisan, as the divine potter, has every right to form some of that fallenness and use it for honorable use and leave the rest in its dishonorable place. I was fascinated this week. My wife and I get frustrated sometimes. We go to the grocery store, go to Walmart, and they give us those plastic bags. You probably have a thousand of them at your house. Because they seem to give you more than you ever need. It's trash, isn't it? It's just trash. It's just trash. Plastic bag worth basically nothing. Do you realize there is a whole community of artists that use trash for art? Plastic bags especially. They make sculptures and everything out of these plastic bags that are worthless that we all throw away. It's trash art. What was once worthless now is worth A whole lot of money. The artisan fashioned garbage into honorable things. It's crazy. And yet we turn to God and we say, how dare you do that? You know why we say that? Because we don't think we're dishonorable. We we don't think we're that bag of trash. We think we're neutral. God takes trash and he makes some of it treasure. But none of the trash has the right to say to God, why? None of it. It's not fair. No, it's not. It's not fair that any of us should have been rescued from the trash heap. It's not fair that God should have to pay the penalty that we owed to him. It's not fair that we should be allowed to walk in the joy of His presence for all eternity because of the death of His Son. None of that's fair to God. But He is sovereign. And He's righteous to do as His purpose desires. We get to go to the wall of worship and worship Him. Paul says, listen, we're just a piece of worthless clay. The potter, doesn't he have the right, verse 21, over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, another for common use? We can't stand against the artist. We are man. He's God. We're here on earth. He's in glories of heaven. We need to remember that when we think about this doctrine. Who God is and who we are. And I want to just take us, as we close our time, just to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. We'll get to verses 22 and 24 next week. But Isaiah 64, of course, Isaiah prophesying to Israel about the future of Israel and the future salvation of Israel, just as Jeremiah. Notice what he says in verse 6. 
For all of us have become like one who is unclean. There's the lump of clay. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. Have you ever read that like that? All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So when someone says, well, I think I'm okay with God because I've done all this good stuff, take them to Isaiah 64, verse 6, and say, here's what God thinks of all your good stuff. All of your good stuff is garbage. And all of us wither like a thief, like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I mean, over and over again, we're unclean, we're filthy, we wither, our iniquities take us away. I mean, the condition is horrible. Verse 7, there's no one who calls on my name, who arouses himself to take hold of me, For you have hidden your face from us, it says, and you have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. (laughs) Romans 1, you gave us over to ourselves. We have no hope. We're garbage, and we can't get out of the garbage pit ourselves. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are potter. And all of us, are the work of your hand. We're the potter. Or he's the potter. We're the clay. And unless he do something, we're bound for the, for the hellish heap with no hope in anything. Let us remember that before we go any further. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for how you have instructed us. You are indeed a merciful God who cares only for your glory and your honor and your praise. And we are feeble, fallen Redeemed fallenness if we know Jesus Christ, but still here sinning at times. Lord, and oftentimes our sin is not an outward act, but an inward thought about you. Cause us to think differently of you, to think rightly of you based upon you and who you are and your definition of us and your definition of you. And help us rest there. Even though we still struggle, even though our minds have questions, help us to come to you with those questions. Come to your word, honestly and openly, willing and ready to understand what you mean by what you say. And then just worship you for who you are. Thank you for these truths, Lord. Impress them upon our hearts and our minds this day for your glory for your name's sake, for the gospel's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.